Welcome to the Art Fight Podcast Welcome with Brian Siskin and Joe The fighting in art, and the art in fighting. I was probably 14 years old, 12 years old, something like that, and I was watching the Woodstock uh, film um, on my couch in my mom's basement. Uh, I think we had rented it from Blockbuster, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. and then, I, you know, and I always knew that I wanted to play drums, but I wasn't playing. My, my mom said they were too loud on your brother would break them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all still very true. It's the first line of defense. Yeah. Let me try this, see if I can dissuade him. Still 100% <laughs> true. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but I remember seeing your solo with Santana and, and, uh, it just ignited something in my brain, you know, I don't know what it was. Maybe it's because I was 12 years old and you looked like you were 12 years old. And so it felt like maybe this was possible for me, Michael. Yes. I think, I think that was the reaction of a lot of people <laughs> is that I was, I looked like I was 12 years old and, uh, <laughs> and I was up, up there would look like a bunch of hooligans and the, and the main <laughs> The main question is always like, how the hell did that guy get there? You know, so um, I'm sure you were existentially yeah. asking yourself that question during that moment too. Um, Actually, I wasn't, but um, <laughs> uh, which speaks to the fact that no, I was, I was here now. Mm. But, um, how, but hey, Michael, Michael. I, I, I'm sorry, but how but old that, are you actually in the film when, when people see you in that footage I've playing had just with Santana? I 20 years old in July, oh, and, man, the, yeah. and, the, and the concert was in August. Uh-huh. So, you legitimately uh, look like a young teenager, though. I mean, you look super yes. young. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. But so, so anyway, obviously, Santana was a huge part of your life and all that, but I really am interested and became... This is not the... I just told the beginning of the story. For mm-hmm. me, um, later on... Um, I was into a lot of uh, music that Bill Laswell and others were producing, and I was following a lot of music by uh, this bass player, Jonas Helborg, mm-hmm. um, and some other people in that sort of kind of, um, kind of fusion type of scene or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and I came across a record that Michael Shreve had done with Jonas Helborg and this guitarist, Sean Lane, from Memphis, and it, it completely changed my life. And I realized, oh, that's Michael. Oh, my God, right? So then I realized there was this whole body of work to start stitching together. I was aware of maybe some, you know, uh, various things in between Santana and them, but that was when it really connected with me. And so then I, um, I just took the initiative to call 411. Who is this guy? Where is this guy? I want to go, f- go talk to this guy, you know, and, uh, and learn, you know, whatever I can learn. And, uh, and so what we really, and Joe, Joe and I were talking about this before we got started, Michael, but, you know, it really is a, uh, the choice that I made at that time in my life when I was in my early 20s to, to do something so outlandish from my little town in North Carolina to just call somebody that, you know, doesn't know me from yeah. anybody. Like, that was, it took such, like, I was so scared to death, but, like, so compelled I had to do it. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know why, you know, it didn't make any sense. And I'm so glad because I realized that that instinct is actually a really good one that I carried with me throughout my life, which is to just go to the, if you if you're turned on by something, just go to the source. And I think go that, to the source. Yeah, um, you know. So so that was uh, that was sort of you know. And then I you know, Michael, I guess you didn't you know. This is before you could even Google people to see if they were totally insane. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I always you know, admired you for that and. I, you know, it's the same thing with 
the way I got into Santana where I took the initiative to drive up to the Fillmore Auditorium after calling every one of my musician friends and seeing, saying, let's see if we can sit in. And everybody I knew said, no way. And so yeah. I just said, well, I'm going to go. And just so tomorrow I can say, I, at least I tried. And uh, it was because of that night that I ended up, you know, getting in Santana uh, another year later, perhaps. But still, if, if I hadn't taken that initiative, it never would have happened. So I still, to this day, try to keep that in mind for myself as well, Brian. I mean, it's just a good thing to to follow your instincts. So I always admired you for that. Uh-huh. And yes, you, 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 you came out, you didn't know. You know, you didn't know if I was crazy or crazier than I was or what. (laughs) But that was such an interesting time because, um, you know, and it's interesting now to be this many years later and have, I mean, obviously, you know, people talk about the 60s and, you know, flower power and all this stuff, right? And how that was a period in, in, uh, in time, and it certainly was, but I wasn't around for that. But I do feel like in a certain way, um, what we were sort of collectively around in Seattle at that time, like my introduction to that was so quick because I was, you know, working, you know, with you and for you, and that was a really amazing time. I mean, uh, in it, Seattle, yeah. yeah, it was. Do Do you feel like that's sort of passing now, or is it continued, or is it just morphed? It's morphed. Uh, I, I think there's still interesting things going on here. Um, you know, as in the same way that I think that there's probably interesting things going on in a lot of places um, because of the nature of the music business and the way that it's shifted. Um, and so what happens is if people want to make music, they've got to find a way to do it. And they are not beholden, even in their minds, to like big record company deals or, or having to make their music so that you know, and the old guy will like it, or you know what I mean. It's yeah. More like they can move more freely without the burden, even in their mind, of it needing to be this or that. And I find that to be the case in my searching for new music. That there's there's plenty of it, you know. And um, so, yes, yeah, Seattle was good. In that period, and it, it still is, and those same people are still participating. Those who a lot of people left, and I always recommend that people leave and um, to you know see the world, or at least go to New York or somewhere, and um, aspire to. If you aspire to more than what's available in a, in any given town, you, you got to leave, and uh, and then you, you're free to come back if, if you like, but. Yeah, that was a particularly potent period, I believe. Um, I was going to ask you what, uh, you know, Brian mentioned how, you know, he discovered you through the Woodstock film playing the drums and then later on, you know, finds you working in this, uh, you know, pioneering world of, you know, electronic composing and things like that. What, what, you know, and Brian, of course, is a drummer who also has done lots of work with his own electronic compositions and the scores for his films and whatnot. Yeah. What is the, I mean, I think a lot of times we think about, you know, the people who got interested in synthesizers early, you know, they're keyboardists and things like that, you know, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, people who came in through that entryway, but it seems like there's a real connection between percussionists and drummers and that, that, uh, that interest in that technology. 
I think um, I don't know if I would agree with you, but um, but I think that there's a certain state of mind or uh, of people who do get curious about it, um, and. I think, you know, we're just compelled to move towards the things that we are attracted to. Mm-hmm. And I am finding that again, I'm renewing my interest in electronic, um, you know, drumming and music making, mm-hmm. uh, as much as I was or more, well, as much as I was 20, 25 years ago. Um, and so I'm forcing myself to, to learn a whole bunch of new things, which I just seem to be born past that line where the DNA makes it easier for you to um, learn new things like software. And, and, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all I, there. I, I think it's I think it's a DNA thing, and I'm determined to to learn this stuff because for for 20, 30 years I've been thinking if I just did that, it would free me up to create so much faster and so much more freely without inhibition. And I'm determined. So I'm at this point in my life where I'm spending at least eight hours a day out in my small studio, trying to learn these new things until it's comfortable until I'm quick Uh uh, on the computer, but I'm trying to make it in a way where I'm setting it up where I can just improvise and then record everything, mm-hmm. then go in there and cut and paste and manipulate it and collage it and do whatever awesome. it needs to be. And so I'm, I'm following that and forcing myself to not quit in frustration like I've always <laughs> done in the past. <laughs> it's interesting to me because I, I feel like, you know, when, you know, the difference between you know a young man or a young woman who's is into art and into being creative and uh, somebody who actually follows through and finds a way to like you were talking about your friend like somebody who figures out a way to make it work so they're getting by and they're doing what they want and they're getting their work made and they're getting the bills paid at the same time somehow and and then somebody who's able to consistently do that you know over over uh, you know decades and still the hard part I think is to be able to do that and still wake up in the morning and be curious and have that hunger to learn new stuff and be, you know, excited to be chasing it down. So like what I think for a lot of people, it's like, that's the, that's like the fire that dies and that's why it doesn't, you don't see it that often. So how do, how do, how, how do you, how have you been able to do that? Do you have a sense of that, of how you've been able to, to stay in that, you know, forward moving mindset? Well, I, I would say that it has not been consistent and that there's been passages of time where I'm completely disillusioned <laughs> and and have no idea what the hell I'm doing. And, and even more frightening, no idea where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as you get older, um, being a drummer, it's physical. So yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm getting arthritis and it's hurting more. I'm actually taking drum lessons like with somebody to help like new hand technique and, and, you know, mechanics and stuff like that, which Uh I don't mind at my age because if you're practicing, you practice differently. Now you, at least if you've grown into some kind of wisdom, you practice more like a, 
a Zen approach. I don't mind going slow and observing, uh-huh. you know. So, um, but I've I've been very disillusioned and came out of it. Oh, geez, maybe two years ago, and just um, I think it was. I think it had to do with a. We did a Santana reunion a couple years ago, and um, the outcome of that for me personally was so frustrating that I just said, fuck it. You know, it's just like, what am I doing? Do what the hell you want and just do the shit out of it. You know, yeah. just like, just like, it's all the stuff that you've all, all always known that, um, it's difficult to, it's difficult to pursue something when nobody around you, is encouraging it, mm-hmm. you know, like your so-called musical mates or something like that. Everybody expects of you to be something other than how you see yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult point at any age, whether you're in high school, probably mostly when you're in high school, um, <laughs> but to, to, to believe in, to believe in what you're, intuition is telling you that you have an attraction towards something and you may not know what it is specifically, but it's an area that moves you, that attracts you, that, that you say, man, if I could just be doing that. And so it's not, I'm I'm not really prescribing to the thing of like, do what you love and everything else will follow. Um, you know, I don't know. I think it's, it's not that easy, but I think that, um, I think that we've got to move towards those things that's, that that ignite a spark in us. Yeah. So, Joe, when you ask how how do you sustain that for the period of time uh-huh. that uh, that looks like I've done, I haven't <laughs> <laughs> because I've gone I've gone through really dark periods of really I I don't I don't necessarily just because everybody expects it of me want to go on the road and slug it out in taverns across america and right getting a van it's like but if you don't do that you're not like a, a music man you mm-hmm. know and i'm a i'm a little bit of a snob and um <laughs> that's that's in when i say that word i mean if it were more sophisticated i would say the word would be what is that word um my taste is specific. <laughs> That's very polite. <laughs> I think. I think one I mean, thing. One thing. You know, to the to this thing that you're, uh, you know, talking about this idea of like, there's this thing you have to do: get in the van and go slug it out on the road, and then then you're a music man, right? And there there really is that 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 still exists. You know, in Nashville, of course, we see it all around us all the time, and it really to mm-hmm. me it, it seems illogical in this day and age you know, given some of these advances, these kinds of technologies that you're learning to use and the way that we can distribute music nowadays, all that stuff, it feels to me like there should be many, many other ways of understanding that, that, you know, you don't have to be a musician on the road performing live music to like be, to be a music man. You know what I'm saying? It seems bizarre (laughs) that 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 stereotype is still such a part of the music scene. Yes, but it's a vital part of it, and I get it. And I, I frankly, I'd like to do it too. But mm-hmm. I'd like to do it doing 
what I love. Sure. Okay. I understand. And you know what I mean? So I get it and I envy people that are out there all the time. Uh-huh. I just hope they're loving it, you know? Yeah. Um, well said. Um, otherwise, um, like I could see trying to put my situation together and getting a, and getting a van and going, you know, yeah. but a nice van. <laughs> right, right. I, that's, that's that's also well said. <laughs> yeah, but it, but you you bring up a good point. I mean, and it's also, I mean, it speaks to to the kind of things we talk about on the show very, very specifically because you know it's the same thing. You know, uh, you know, people who are you know practicing martial artists, competitive martial artists, actual professional yeah. or amateur fighters. I mean, they are in the same boat where it's like they're doing this highly specialized thing, something that Brian and I see as very creative and full of beauty and wonder, right? So they're doing this sort of similar work in terms of you know the way that I look at it, and at the same time, when it's all said and done, even if it's just talking about a dancer so let's say you know it's like you know suddenly the ankles start hurting and they don't stop hurting anymore you know what i'm saying and uh and and, and it's a it's an issue so much so many of our things even you know i think about you know some of the things brian does or other photographers do and it's like when i do photography projects it's like you know i it's a very physical kind of thing i end up doing you know and it's like after, if you can't like you know get down in some bizarre position to get this weird shot you're trying to get in this moment it's like then all of a sudden you know, you're 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 have to change the way you do it, you know. So yeah, so perhaps you should consider getting a drone. From <laughs> That's what Brian figured out. Yeah. Brian's like, I don't have to move; I'll move the camera. But I, but I, do, but I do think there's something to be said, though, to, to your point about sort of there's a there's a not a, I don't I wouldn't say it's a colossal sort of failure of imagination across the board. People are doing it, but I think that there's a responsibility to try to figure out how to transmute what you're trying to do or communicate or creatively say or feel, or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, you have to find ways that are sort of uh, evolving uh, and uh, increasingly efficient, as you're talking about, Michael, you know, with, with your practice. I know that, um, I know that uh, you know, Neil Peart went through a very similar thing uh, that sounds like, you know, like what you're doing, where it's sort of like, how do I break a lot of bad habits? Uh, or not bad habits, but just bad habits for where I am now. Um, you know, hand position things that contribute to mm-hmm. your arthritis or whatever. Um, sure. You mean his drum <laughs> lessons with um, Peter Erskine and um, and um, the other guy that taught everybody? Um, yeah. <laughs> the other guy that when, taught <laughs> uh, You know, uh, he's taught, you know, he, Steve Smith and Dave Weckl and yeah. he's passed away now, but he was the hand technique guy in LA. And in fact, I'm studying with one of those guys now too. I've taken one lesson uh, two weeks ago by Skype. But um, let me ask you: You guys read a book called "The Art of Learning: An Inner Journey to Optimal Performance" by Josh Waitzkin? And Josh is was the youngest uh, chess champion in the world. Oh. And then. He's he's the guy that's featured in the film that big film about chess um, uh, from years ago, and then he left that and he started doing martial arts and became a champion martial artist as well. It's a fascinating book, and um, it's dealing with a lot of the same things that that we are discussing. Oh wow! There's a uh, there's a uh, uh, you know a combat sports analyst that Brian and I both like, who's named uh, 
Robin Black. And Robin Black has, you know, podcasts that he does that are sort of similar to this. Usually he's talking to a guest or he's just, you know, rapping to the camera himself. But he'll get into a lot of stuff about learning and optimization and all that stuff. And he's recommended that book before. And I think that guy got into, like, uh, uh, a thing that where it's like in Kung Fu, they call it pushing hands, where basically you're doing this sort of, like, hand-fighting balance technique, and then whoever can throw the other guy off balance will win. So it's like a Tai Chi kind of thing, but it's but it's like a sport, right? Does that sound familiar? Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. It's, but that, sounds uh, although, like a, that book sounds fascinating to me. Well, you know, I think the point is that um, um, any, things learned from one thing, this is what your podcast is about, you know, knowledge acquired from one area can be applied directly to any other area. Yes. And especially the knowledge of learning and how to learn. And then the, you know, the, the sidebar effect of your observation of the way you learn. And it's been, that's what's been critical for me is to slow myself down enough to say, why is it that you give up so easily in learn in trying to learn things that you know can help you in the long run when they're when you run into difficulties, and that's why this time I'm determined to um, to learn this stuff because I know in the end it's going to free me up yeah. creatively, and um, and also I have a goal of doing a solo performance show that I can just like I said get in my van and go and and do and i'm serious about that i'd like to lighten up and travel the world you know and just do what i do um even last night my wife woke me up and said sweetheart i just had this dream we've got to get out of here and it's turning into too late oh wow that's, (laughs) that's heavy i was she said like out of the country and 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 she's not even like that. I'm like that. She's not like that. I'm the guy that's always looking where in the world should we move and um and get the hell out of here. Um but it was interesting and then she started talking about and then in the dream it made me think what's important? Is it that coat or this or that, you know? And I said simple I got all my stuff out in that like twelve by twelve room. And that's about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's all, all I, I need. All these clothes, I've got a closet full of clothes. You know me, I wear the same stuff all the time. So <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I'm not sure what my point is, but in fact, I, I've lost my, no, my train of thought. <laughs> that's <laughs> what we do here. <laughs> no, but I, I like the idea of um, this, this extra notion of, of being observant to how you are learning and preparing. There we go. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that that is, uh, I think that's something that at least for, for me, I'm not quite, I, I know that that's something that I have to cultivate. Oh, I think you've been cultivating that for many years. Like, because I think that you follow your instincts and then you figure out a way to do what you want to do, something interesting. And it's not necessarily the way you get there is not necessarily the way other people would, would arrive at the same place. And, um, but you, you get it done and you say, you do what you want to do, you know, by hook or by crook. And, um, and I think, you know, that's just what it takes. I mean, that's the, that's the artistic mind. That's the entrepreneurial mind. Um, 
I mean, talk about areas of relevance, you know. I mean, in the end, really, your life should be creative. I mean, the way you live your life is a creative statement. And now more than ever, right? Because there's more possibilities. So uh, but there's more possibilities because of the internet, because of anything, to free yourself to, if you have an idea, to make something of it and, and you know, actually do what you'd like to do. That's, yeah, that's heavy. <laughs> that's heavy. I Well, you know, I, just as you were with, uh, you know, with Elvin, you know, and people that, that, you know, Elvin Jones, you know, John Coltrane, drummer, uh, and also Force in general. But so so Michael, um, you know, has been uh, and I know that, Michael, your favorite thing to talk about is, is things that are not finished yet that have been unfinished for long periods of time. Uh, oh, don't get me started. Because <laughs> that's one of my main. That's one of the big realizations I've come to in the last two months is the things that I have left unfinished. Okay. <laughs> and and I am determined to get them done. Um, and I'll tell you why. But go ahead, Brian. Yeah. Tell well, I guess what. I was just gonna just the backstory real quick is that you know Michael was a longtime friend of Elvin and took a lot of time and energy back when I was around Seattle in that time. Uh, and then along, I think probably prior and then also after, um, but I was around for some of that before Elvin passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Michael's writing a book and has all these interviews and has all this, uh, you know, sort of document. And this has been a pursuit, you know, Fantastic. And, and, and in a strange way, like I, I feel like, um, I wish that I could do something like that for you, Michael, because you've been important to me in the same way that Elvin was important to you, if that makes any sense. Yes, I, I do understand. The, the situation with Elvin Jones was that he, you know, I spoke to him one day about that he should write a book. And he said, well, why don't you do it? And I foolishly, <laughs> I foolishly agreed to it. And, um, you know, 20 years later, there's nothing out. But I am talking to Rob Wallace at Hudson Music, and we are, we are planning something. Um, but nowadays, I mean, I've got... From what I have already, I've gotten turned down by by people. But nowadays, it could be anything. It doesn't need to be a linear book. Yes. You know, it could be multimedia. It could be all kinds of things. Plus, I've got two nights filmed at Jazz Alley wow. in Seattle. And, wow. um, and not on video. I mean, old-style film. So Awesome. Um, and I still haven't <laughs> finished it. That record that I started 20 years ago with Drums of Compassion, <clears throat> that finally I'm finishing it. I'm working on artwork now. But these things, I feel like, need to be completed so that one can move on. And the reason why I got this urge is, like I mentioned earlier, is because I got um, I got checked for cancer about a couple of months ago Uh and they just took a little something off my above my eye and then i i missed a phone call uh a week later or so that said it said that um you we had the results but we don't want to talk about it over the phone please call us you Uh know and it's like oh great so i called and i couldn't reach anybody and then in between that period when I couldn't reach anybody, I had an appointment with a 
with a, a woman that I go see every two weeks, kind of like a shrink, and I talk. And I record every every meeting mm-hmm. so that I can listen to myself back because I feel real free there and I speak really honestly. And so I need to hear it back. Like, okay, where are you at? This is the way I can check myself out rather than in my head. Uh-huh. And, you know, so, cause I'm, I'm vocalizing what's going on internally and that's a real positive thing, but you wouldn't vocalize it. You just kind of have passing thoughts. So it's good for me to hear a solid voice and learn that I say the phrase, you know, way too much. But, um, <laughs> you know how, how people say like? Yeah, know? oh yeah, yeah. See what I said? How people say like, you know? That's yeah. Where I go. So, and anyway, I told her an hour ago, I received this phone call. And so I think I have cancer, but I'm not sure what kind of cancer. And I said, I'd like to make this discussion as if it's the real possibility, which it was, of having some, you know, melanoma or something like that. And it was at that moment that I realized, why am I putting off certain things? And this record with Drums of Compassion, you know, which is with Jack D. Jeanette and Ayrto and, you know, Brian, I probably started it when you were around. Yeah, and, I, was, um, I was around for a lot of that tracking with uh, Jeff Grinke and some others. And we did a bunch of right. two-inch two right. tape, two-inch tape. Awesome. Yeah. So, so what happened was, after all these years, during that session, I got to the reason why I'd been putting it off. And here's what it came out to be. This record is really important to me. This music is important to me. I care about it deeply, and I love it. If I put it out, it's going to be the same thing as all the other records. It's just going to be another fucking record out there, and nobody's going to give a shit. Mm. And so it's more valuable to me being important personally than putting it out in the world and having it you know, diluted or maybe my impression of it because people don't care. Yeah. And yeah. I, and so I realized that was the truth that I was avoiding putting it out because not because, not because of fear, which, you know, I kept thinking, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? It's because it means so much to me. Once I put it out, I may have to let that go. Mm. Well, uh, you know, I think that that's so, that's so interesting because um, you know, if you think about, um, uh, so what you're saying is that this record is so precious that, that, um, it's almost like being, if you ever release it, then you don't have it to, to sort of, uh, play with anymore. And this near dear thing to you to sort of continue to work on, you know, it makes me think of this, um, there's a painting that's at the, uh, that's at the Met in New York that always caught me just devastated me and it's a painting by Rousseau and it is uh, a painting that when you look at the date to see when the painting was it has like a span I forget what it is but I want to say it's a span of uh, 35 or 40 years and and, uh-huh. and it basically goes into talking about it's, it's, it's a whole it's a dark it's just called like Black Forest or something and it's uh, uh-huh. it's just massive scale painting that is just I mean all it is is it's like you're in a, alone in a forest at night and you can just kind of see through the trees and, you know, it's very dark. Uh, and it's not like there's uh, some, you know, sort of uh, incredible amount of, you know, 
uh, surrealist detail in it or something. It's mm-hmm. quite like you know, it's a little bit loose, you know. But it's he paint he 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 never actually declared it finished, and basically right. he he died, and then you know they took this painting and put it in the museum, and just considered it well uh, unfinished but worthy of showing, mm-hmm. and then uh, the fact that it you know he had been. Have it, keeping this in the back of his studio, and it's it's and it's also like a stylistic deviation from so many things that he's done. It's a very particular thing. So all of his other work, if you look at that, he was doing during that time of that painting store sort of being his back back garage kind of project or whatever <laughs> it was. You know, right. he was letting all the styles and the the textures and the the fads and the way that the world looks at things pass him by. Um, while he had this really pure vision that he was sort of keeping on a hold on to in the back, and then he just never let it go. And I wonder, you know, I wonder yeah. if he, yeah. I, I don't know how he passed away, but I wonder if he had a last moment to be like, you know what, I'm glad I never finished it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, <laughs> well, I know um, I've been reading. Um, actually, when I say reading, I'm I, I listening on you know in the car. Uh, to, you know, books on Audible, but also Leonardo da Vinci's um, uh, biography, um, and it's a great one because it's it's by you know a masterful uh, biographer Walter Isaacson, and he had the same problem. He didn't complete things, and there were some major major pieces that he never completed, and even in the book, you know, he he. Isaacson says, if he would have just taken a little less time on those notebooks and the detail in them, he could have finished these masterpieces. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but on the other hand, those notebooks are considered masterpieces in their own right nowadays. Mm. But um, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating. But I had to come to terms with myself, so I I have. Um, Almost completed all the artwork, but some of this, I just found out that a poem that I wanted on there. Um, they're not granting permission, and some of the photographs, because I'm taking, it's called Drums of Compassion, but it just it just hit me, which is maybe good, too, that it's taking this long, that what I'm going to aim it at is the migrant and immigration situation worldwide, wow. and that... Um, that you know, there's no compassion for that anymore. For, for people who are struggling um, and leaving, you know, the United States is getting to be as, one of the worst now. Mm. But um, that's aside from the point. The whole the whole thing is of completion, and I'm anxious to complete these big projects that um, that I've taken too long to complete. And now, what I want to do is put a lot of stuff out and they don't have to be big. It can be a lot of small things, Yeah. but I've got so much stuff backed up that I can, and already recorded and stuff like that, that I can clean up from the past and I can put it all out, you know, yeah. and just, and just be more prolific in the future. It's kind of, it's kind of like that question. If you could tell your 30 year old, talk to your 30 year old self now as i am 68 um some something you've learned what would it be and what it what it is for me is don't worry about it so much finish it and put it out and move on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah yeah i love that and it's so hard 
it's so hard to to do that, but uh, because ultimately every artist has uh, a there's always going to be a, a a huge gap between what you envision as your sort of complete work or a complete statement or a complete uh, sort of uh, whatever. Um, level of expertise or you know what like you, you have this greater vision and that's why you're always striving and that's why you're actually even doing the work but you have to be able to somehow internally give up these internal little designations of doneness of these minor sort of things that you're doing uh and just call, call it a day and be done with it and really just, just painfully stick with the decisions that you make and and i always say like like i always know when if i you know i haven't been making tons of records lately but i'm, I'm gonna be getting back into that and like for me it's I know it's done when I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> you know, like I just, you know, like, and then I get like one more brief moment of satisfaction that I can kind of reconsider my my newfound hatred for it by once it's actually pressed and I, you know, I hear the master or like whatever it is. And then I have this one mm -hmm. moment of like reconciliation with it. And then I just got to move on. And that's really hard too, because if you're an artist that's in today's climate where you're generally marketing and driving things yourself because you don't want to answer to some asshole or some other entity that's not trying to help you, then all that's on you. And it's so hard, the labor of just getting the work done, by the time it's done to put out, like what do you, what do you even have left yeah. to, to do all the things that are not natively your expertise in terms of you know the marketing or the- Yeah, university yeah. and booking yeah. and all the things yeah. to be a real music man. Yeah, and, that, <laughs> yeah. and, that, and, that and then what that does is that creates, it's, I think it's another cause for some of the inertia that, that a lot of us can experience because you know that when it's done, it means a whole other sequence of stuff has to start that you don't really give a shit about. Um, but at the same time, you want it to be done well, but you don't, you know, it's just this whole conundrum, you know, but like, I, you know, I do feel like, uh, you know, the, so uh, Michael, you know, you had this, uh, this session that you had recorded um, uh, back, you know, probably 15 years ago now um, with a bunch of great musicians. And then you gave that stuff to me uh, some years ago when I was living in New York mm -hmm. and just sent me the files. And it was definitely in and around this topic where it was like, hey, man, I, I just I don't know what this is. I just want to give it up and then uh, uh, be freed of it. But I want to get something back that I have some input on. And then let's just get this thing done. And so we took this uh, yeah. project. And that's, a perfect, that's a perfect example because I had... I had the record. I, I brought the guys in the studio. You know, it was Skerrick and Roto and um, um, Reggie Watts. Oh, Reggie Watts, and, and and it was completely improvised. I came in with some loops that we played on, but I tried all kinds of things, like having guys come in um, and overdub stuff and try to make sense of it, and I didn't like it. But I knew that there was something there. And that's why I, I thought, I'll give it to Brian because he'll be able to explode it open and have a, a completely different point of view uh -huh. than me, which I'm, I'll be grateful for. You know, just take it. Just make it happen. And, <laughs> and, and that's when you give up, you know, you give up um, holding on so tightly. And, and it's really a beautiful thing because then you can open yourself up to being fascinated all over again by it by and i know that you, you were I, I the way i look at you is like you, you're a little extreme and <laughs> and i i wanted somebody with that point of view to be able to you know not just make it you know 
I didn't know what you were going to do, but I trusted that it was going to be, if your aesthetic liked it, I, I'd probably be fine with it, you know? <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And I know and, what you, I know what you mean. Cause it was sort of like, it's, you don't want to give it to somebody to then have just this kind of softball sort of minor reinterpretation. That's not leaning. It really required somebody to sort of lean into it in almost a way that was uncomfortable for me, but you just got to do it and then kick the dirt up and then whatever comes back, you know, it comes back. But I was willing to, you know, to push things because <clears throat> well, I think also just the the tracks that you gave me at the time, it really was a profound mystery because there was so much great playing and there were so many great ideas and there were so much uh, things, so many amazing parts and pieces happening, but it just, there was some weird kind of spine that it just didn't have. And, yeah. and, uh, and I can see how any general uh, approach at mixing, overdubbing, uh, still keeping the real-time continuum as a requirement and in a performative way would not work for that record. And I knew that it was going to take like cutting up the time and then also introducing some other uh, elements to just sort of disturb and shake up the forces of, you know, the kind of energy sure. that's at work. And it had to be something that was posthumous to the, the actual recording, which, you know, uh, it makes me argue sort of the the purest aspect of it, right? You know, of like how real, you know, or whatever, you know. But in the age of, yeah. you know, I just thought of it more as like a, like what would William Burroughs do or something, you know, like, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and I'm... <laughs> and That's I'm, funny. <laughs> and uh, so I just did what he would do sans the heroin. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, yeah, and for, for, for your listeners, uh, by the way, that record is called Trilon. Um, I had the same experience with the record that I co-produced um, of, of Bill Frizzell's that was with Dave Holland and Elvin Jones. And I, my idea of the music to do for the record, even before you, we even started, was for Bill to play in an environment that Elvin was dominant, meaning you know, fiery and this and like Elvin kicking ass. And, but the way Bill decided to go and Lee Townsend, his manager and producer mm -hmm. was, we'll bring Elvin into Bill's world. But that meant playing like country songs and, um, yeah. you know, moon over, I mean, you know, some standards. And, and I thought, man, this is the wrong way to do this record. You've got Elvin in the room. And, um, and so, when we were all done, it everybody was baffled for six months. Like, are we even going to put it out? And and my argument was, damn it, you know, should have taken a different approach. And and then six months later, because nothing was happening. Six months later, I said, how could we possibly go wring with these people in a room? <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's relook at the whole thing. Let me relook at the whole thing and just see what's beautiful about it rather than wishing it was something else. Yeah. And between doing some editing and, and sequencing and this and that, finally got to a record where it's like, oh, yeah. And Bill's like, yeah, okay, yeah, this is, you know. But sometimes you have to, it's, sometimes you have to just look at it from a whole point of view, which is why I'm interested in taking mushrooms again. Yeah. 
this has been on my mind as well. <laughs> well, the idea of just uh, the kids now are smarter, uh, Michael, because they're they're microdosing, which is just more responsible. <laughs> no, I'm I'm I'm, I'm very um, interested in all that. And there's a brand new book uh, out about it by a really fascinating guy um, making the argument for microdosing for yeah. medicinal reason. Yeah, and, I heard all about this but, uh, recently. Yes. Yeah, and. I, I just think that, you know, every once in a while, we need to have our minds exploded and, um, and, and get a big picture. And I know I've been desiring that. It's so interesting because once you have your mind exploded, or you, you, and I'm not talking about taking acid. I'm just saying when your point of view changes, yeah. um, then you can even get down to micro stuff. And the and the stuff that you didn't pay attention to becomes really valuable and important. And part of the reason why I want to learn the gear and why I want to learn to edit really, really well is because there's a lot of ideas that can be brought together that are not complete unto themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm really interested in, in just trusting my instincts and putting things together because... Mm-hmm. I've been on, on, on the same road really for 50 years. And now I, I want to start, I start, I want to collage myself. Yeah. You know, even maybe going out and taking a look at my whole life's work, everything I've played on or anything, and just saying, like, like great artists do, they say, I can use whatever I want. Like Picasso used the African stuff, mm-hmm. like like Matisse did, or like like boy anybody, and where everything becomes available, you know, nothing's off limits, nothing's off grounds, and then if you use your own, just your own stuff, it's like who can argue, you know? I mean, they may not like it, but it's perfectly valid to do that to just use whatever you want of your own um, repertoire, cut it up, mash it up, turn it around, do anything and, and make something happen rather than it being a linear life. Mm-hmm. It really, that, that seems to be the theme, I think, throughout everything, which is there's just, there's always a way to go further or a way out of a problem by just recontextualizing existing things, materials, perspectives, precisely, precisely. All, all of this. And I think that that's, and in a weird way, that's sort of daunting because if you're willing to accept that as like a, an, an iterative possibility for everything, then you've got to have even more discipline or control somewhere mm-hmm. to say, but here's some constraints around that so that I'm doing something that ha- feels like it's in a flower pot or, yeah. you know, it's, it's not yes. just like uh, wild. I, 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 I think you're completely right. Yes. Once, once it all opens up, then you do have to contextualize it and you have to, what's hard once everything becomes available is keeping track of it. And there's a discipline in that. It's not, it's not like, Oh, it's a, like you go into a child's room and it's just a mess with toys. Um, you have to, it could be like that. You know, let's say you have old cassettes sitting around, Brian, you know, I mean, just stuff. You know, I do, (laughs) you know, so I want to listen to that stuff and I want to pay attention to it because I was in a different frame of mind. I was creative, but I didn't give it the weight that it 
needed to be given Michael, in terms of value. I totally, I t- yes, like this is, and honestly, there's something, when you bring up cassettes specifically, there's something so great about that sound that I just can't get past it. It's, it's, it's some weird harmonic thing that happens only with cassettes that I think is fa- fantastic. By the way, Michael, I just want to just go ahead and tell you, um, and I'm not sure that I've ever told you this, okay? And I've known you for probably a good 20 years now, but I'm just going to go ahead and level with you. <laughs> um, there was a time in probably 1996 where I think I, w- I was basically, this is when cassettes were still pretty prominent, and you had a, a box of cassettes that you just were kind of trash cassettes, and you gave some to me uh, that I was just going to record over. And I got one, and I still have it somewhere, and I'm going to find it. But I remember I got one from you, and it's actually the only thing on the tape, and I'm not even kidding, the only thing on this tape is Mick Jagger leaving you a voicemail. <laughs> oh, man, you, know, you got to get that to me. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking, oh, my God, I keep forgetting that. Like, I, I, That's you know in a deep tape box somewhere, but I know I'll find it, and I will digitize it, and I'll send it to you. I'll, actually, I'll send you your tape back. How about that? Um, they'll do both. I've been looking for that. No, come on, come on. (laughs) I think, hey Brian, if you go back and listen to that, I think it may be on the same cassette. Is Miles Davis calling? Oh my God, um, calling for Carlos. Oh, (laughs) okay. Well, I will. I think this is the next thing. uh, This is Miles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome man. well uh hey so uh, i hate to cut it but we got to go because uh noise is okay start- noise is starting to happen in here because people are loading in for my studio opening which is going to be happening in starting know, in 55 I, minutes I so did you get my did you get my email about um um anyway check your email <laughs> okay and, uh, all right and it's a pleasure to meet you joe and brian let's um Let's catch up in the next week or so and, and talk about stuff. I think I think that I've got to get out to Seattle. Hey, Michael, it's great to it's great hey, to talk. I got to get down to uh, Nashville to visit the museum where my Woodstock drums. That's are. right. That's right. It's here at the the Museum Musicians Hall of Fame. Yeah. If yeah, and yeah. if you if you just if you actually get in the van and start doing some gigs, be in touch with us because we can definitely hook you up with like the the art music weirdo uh, scene in town and help you get a gig and stuff. I I just read a. a, a something online about the weird music scene in nashville i had no idea yeah Um, yeah it's here it's here brian's right in the middle of it (laughs) hey really quick michael i wanted to say thank you for your time and i appreciate your your insights man and your spirit and i wanted to tell you really quick i became aware of your relationship with brian because uh about a year ago uh the like art house theater in nashville had been closed and when it reopened I was anxious to go see a movie there, and uh, Woodstock was traveling again. So I took my wife to see Woodstock, and I don't know if it was the first time she'd seen it or not, but she was like blown away by the whole Santana set, and specifically blown away by like how young is this drummer? Like this guy's out of his yeah. mind, crazy good, and he looks like a kid. Yeah. So like a lot of people, she ended up going down this rabbit hole. And when I told her today that I would that we were going to be talking to you on the phone, she was like, "You got to tell that guy." Like you know, uh, I don't even remember what she wanted me to say. But she's a huge fan. Yeah. She loves she loves that movie, and well, she loves uh, your playing. And she's a big and and she in uh, has been a, a bit of a drummer in the past, and sort of you know uh, has you know sort of a dream about being a drum player. She was actually a trumpet player, like Miles. <laughs> but uh, but um uh, but so she really admired your playing, and and is and was like really starstruck when I told her I was going to be talking to you today. <laughs> well, 
Tell her thank you. And another <laughs> thing I want to mention, and this doesn't necessarily have to be there, but the 50th anniversary of Woodstock is coming, and they're making plans. But I'm kind of taking this point of view personally that I don't want to do it. And mm. p- partly because... Partly because of that, because part of the charm of that was I looked like I was 12 (laughs) and you're never going to replace it. And it's kind of like, leave it alone, leave it alone, you know, but they are in serious discussions, but I am seriously considering just saying I pass. And, uh, I think it's one of those things, I think it's one of those things where you're, you're going to be able to equally look at it from two different sides. You're going to say, Hey, I'm grateful that I even had this as part of my life. And so of course, why should I sort of poo poo this thing and like, go be a part of it and don't second guess it too much. Don't think about it. Don't live by it. It's done. Great. And then on the other side Mm -hmm. of it, I can see how it's certainly like a, a, a perceivably sort of limiting thing. And I know that you've, you've wrestled with that. It's, you know, I'm not saying like that you're sort of afflicted in the same way that a child star was afflicted, you know, afflicted mm-hmm. or something. But uh, I'm not saying something you're the, like that. I'm not saying you're <laughs> the, the Ricky Schroeder of, of jazz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, well, it's, actually, it's Rick there, it is something like that because it's like a handful of people that know my other work outside of Santana. Yeah. So, uh-huh. um, if it's Santana, it's Woodstock. And so, yeah. I mean, if I go out on a clinic tour and I ask people, how many people have heard anything I've done? Like one people, it's like that guy in, it's like that guy in uh, the life of Brian, you know. Like, <laughs> I do, you know. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that Brian and me and my wife all appreciate like the whole body of work, and uh, and again, really, I also really appreciate the insights that you're laying on us today. I mean, the things you're talking about are exactly the kind of things we want to talk about on this podcast. Yeah. So, so we're gonna have you back, by the way, as you have yeah. no choice. And you're a perfect first yeah, guest I for our new second season. Idea. We're not done. Okay, guys. We're not done. Have a great night. Talk to you soon, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. So that concludes uh, season two. Season two's over. (laughs) Episode episode one. That was Uh, awesome. That was really fun. Yeah, that was really good. So let's just uh, wrap it, get out of here. Uh, We got uh, a party to have. All right. Preach. Thanks, Joe. Okay guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash artfightpodcast, click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast, and once you get there you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level, you're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and and help us out again anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast click on support this podcast all right thanks everyone